arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. All conscious thinking is likewise out of accord with the order of the body. Myths come from down here, from where the energies come from, as dreams do. And it's the business of ego not to try to dictate to this circle to say how square it should be, but to try to bring its impulse system into relationship to the conditions of the environment which ego has constructed. Culture is a cooperation, is the result of a cooperation between the self, you might say, and the ego. And mythology is the language of the self speaking to the ego system. And the ego system has to learn how to read it. And for the most part, we in our world have forgotten. When I was very young and trying to make sense of the world, I imagined and probably believed that the people I met outside my family and neighborhood realm were really people within the realm of my acquaintance, but with a different face and appearance. I couldn't abstract the underlying human psyche that makes us what we are. Let's take that concept, but make it real with a small collective morphing into other people or players. And in this story, some poor slob just happens to take the wrong road, the road to nowhere, and gets ensnared by the players in purgatory. Players in Purgatory by Robert P. Fitton. Nothing looked familiar. Norman's head ached and he thought he might pass out. His cell phone was fully charged yet he got no signal. The light from distant street lamps ahead diminished into the road as his company car whipped by the cable-connected concrete post bordering the woods. The narrow, cracked asphalt road led to a sloping drawbridge that was slowly lowered ahead and the red and white gates started upward. Light pinpoints dotted the darkness and a few boat masts were visible away from the bridge. The red brake lights glowed in his mirror as he slowed to a stop. A hunched over man in a black fedora emerged from the orange incandescent glow of a guard shack behind the rising gate. He wore an open dark coat and leaned on a cane as he shuffled to the asphalt. His sullen face and heavy eyelids resembled a wax figurine in the night. With some kind of weird accent, and still fifty feet away, his words sounded as if he were inside Norman's company car. I've been waiting for you, Norman. You are here, on the road to nowhere. Norman started the engine, the tires crunched in the shoulder gravel, and he rolled toward the man. The white speed limit signs and the drawbridge warning sign blurred. He flipped the headlights to high beams, yet the man did not move or cover his eyes. Where the hell am I, old man? He shouted out the open window. I was on the expressway, dammit, he said, turning momentarily toward the glowing bridge. I see no reason why you cannot cross. I'm lost, you numbhead. Norman banged the steering wheel. Do you know who the hell I am? Yes, sir, I do. 
I'm Ralph Norman. I'm the number one salesman in my company, bud. Looking out for number one. Looking out for number one? How did you know I was gonna say that? Norman threw his coffee mug against the passenger window. This is crazy. I was on the expressway out of Boston. I got two tickets to the game. Again, where the hell am I? You are on the road to nowhere. You will be at your destination on the other side. Oh, really? I paid 1500 bucks for both tickets. I better be near Quincy, and why is it dark outside? What the hell's going on here? Norman opened the door. He had never seen this bridge, corrugated metal road panels looping upward with the green metal railings into the darkness. The red and white striped gate arm was locked in place and a small screen TV overhead played a news channel inside the shack. How do I get to Quincy, pal? Across the drawbridge, Mr. Norman. Again, how do you know who I am? He shook his head and crossed his arms. If I lose those tickets, old man. The thin little man smiled the lip smile of someone in charge. The man turned and walked toward the rising gate arm but slowly vanished on the bridge. Norman moved toward the locked door handle and pounded on the window. Like the inside of a car wash, his car advanced on the metal surface. The blackness beyond the halogen street lamps caused his knuckles to whiten as he gripped the wheel. He peered back at the guard shack but never saw the man in the long coat. Darkness swept over him like a curtain, ending the show. He pushed open his company car door. The sun hurt his eyes now. Down the alley, a crazed, thinning-haired little stump of a man waved his arms as he shouted. He wore a smudged t-shirt and a pair of dark work pants and looked as if he had just arrived from an all-nighter at the insane asylum. I'm human. I'm human. I'm a man. I will survive. Get lost, creep. Don't let them find me. They will, you know. And I'll, I'll be part of them. His words echoed between the brick walls and his watery bloodshot eyes. A thick beard stubble was days old, clamped Norman's shoulders with his hairy hands. Norman ripped the guy's wrists away and gritted his teeth. What the hell do you think you're doing? His eyes were transfixed and his yellow incisors protruded again as he held on to Norman's shoulders. You don't know, do you? Oh, the players, they are clever, brother. They're clever. This time Norman chopped this nutcase's hands back. Listen, I'm going to make this real simple. Beat it. They'll get you too. Norman stepped toward the road, turned and then moved away as the guy's rambling faded. You just don't get it. They're out there and they want you to be a part of them. I won't do it. I won't do it. Norman crunched his eyes closed. This creep's aggravation pushed his tolerance. He spun as the guy approached from behind. Look, Pally, I don't know what the hell your problem is, and I really don't care. Lunatics like you should exit back to the funny farm with the rest of the mush brains. And you just stay away from me. He jabbed his finger into the guy's chest. Got it? You walk a mile in my shoes, brother. Froth gathered around the corners of his mouth. I don't give a damn about your shoes, brother. My name is Jonas Smelter. You want them to take me to Gerstein's? Shut up, you goof, said Norman as he marched back to the street. 
Gerstein's funeral parlor. There's this room behind the funeral parlor itself. I got bigger things to worry about than you and your stiffs at the funeral home. Norman clicked his keys and jaunted back to his company car. He tried his phone as he ran, but he got no signal. Smelter stumbled after him. Don't be a fool, Norman! Norman skidded to a stop and he faced Smelter about 20 yards away. How do you know my name? He rushed forward and ripped at Smelter's arm. I asked you a question, moron. How do you know my name? Smelter slurred his words and panned skyward as his eyes widened. I have a sixth sense. I just know there's 13 of them in the ethereal plane. Am I just to be absorbed into their being? Am I? You're mental, said Norman, dialing Billy on his cell as he returned to his company car. Norman pinched the two Oakland tickets between his thumb and index finger. Billy wouldn't believe he had 50-yard line tickets. Billy answered after a couple of rings. Yeah. Okay, Billy D, I got him. 50-yard line, dude. Okay. You don't sound very enthused. After a short silence, Billy cleared his throat. When can I go? Jenkins tells me I gotta do the work inventory, so I can't go. Get out of it. We're talking 50-yard lines, Billy. I'll ask around. Norman held out the phone and shook his head. He stuffed the tickets back in his shirt pocket. Yeah, you do that. He turned as Smelter poked his flattened face around a parked pickup. His mouth was open for several seconds before he spoke. You can hear them. That, that high-pitched beep, like when the doctor gives you a hearing test, and the shaking, and the vibration. You know they're coming or they're near. You're nuts, bozo. Bring me to the game so I can hide. Norman tightened his fist. You want the cops over here, Smelter? Cops don't have any power, but some of the players are cops. Thirteen players have the power of everyone who's been absorbed into the ethereal plane. Norman crossed the pavement with the deliberateness of a running back finding open ground. He clicked the locks on his car and yanked the door open toward him. Then he slid into the seat. The engine spun with a quick twist of the keys. Norman grabbed the door handle before he could secure the door. Smelter leaped and lifted the tickets from his pockets. Hey, 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 Smelter! Smelter slipped on the asphalt and scrambled down the street. You son of a bitch! Norman left the company car running and didn't even close the door as he chased the grubby Smelter down the sidewalk. I paid for those tickets, creep! Smelter dotted to his left. An oncoming pickup's brakes squealed, and then tires slid across the grit. Norman maneuvered between the parked cars. A man with short gray hair swung like a released slingshot around an open pickup door. Norman pawed his way through the gathering crowd. Two young men lifted a dazed Smelter to his feet. Smelter opened and closed his blue eyes as he slowly scanned the crowd. A man in a blue shirt and amber-striped tie clenched his wide jar and furrowed his rusty brows. Kendall! You're Frank Kendall! You're a player! You hired this guy to run me down! I never met you before in my life, buddy. I hear the beep. Oh my god! The ground is moving! Smelter staggered back and fought to maintain his balance. You want me to tell them all 
Do you, Kendall? You want me to tell them how you and Rundle were at the bus terminal when I tried to leave the city this morning? Did anyone call the EMTs? Asked Kendall. This man is obviously sick. Oh, no you don't, said Smelter, holding the awning support poles as he backed to the sidewalk. So that's the plan. Have the other players show up in the ambulance and then take me to Gerstein's. You think I'm an idiot. No way, Norman called out. Hey, you, Smelter, give me my damn tickets. Somebody call the cops, yelled a tall man with a shaved head and denim shirt. Smelter retreated down the adjacent street. I won't let them get me. I won't become a part of them. Norman ran faster as Smeltzer veered toward a dirty blue city bus near the curb and then darted inside. The bus nudged slowly away from the curb, spewing billowing exhaust toward Norman as he screamed for the driver in the side mirror. Hey, hey, that man has my football tickets! Winded, Norman slowed as the fiery-eyed Smeltzer, his arms and hands pressed against the rear bus window, slowly moved away. He thought about chasing the bus to the next stop, or perhaps he could hail a cab. Instead, he trekked across a side lawn and back to his company car. That bus was headed down the adjacent street and into the city itself. He kicked open an aluminum gate, but his company car was gone as he panned left. Damn you, Smelter! The taxi raced down the adjacent street after the bus. Norman leaned forward into the front seat. Get that bus! Man stole my football tickets. I know, Bob, I know, said the driver. Norman stared at his hairy brow and wide jaw. Haven't I seen you somewhere before? I ain't never met you. His cell phone sounded. Hello. This is Sergeant Devers. We found your car, Mr. Norman. Good work, Sergeant. Abandoned. I'm impressed. Where can I pick it up? Eddie's Auto Salvage. Right next to Gerstein's funeral home. Where's Gerstein? Where? Gerstein's? Right. As far as the man who took your tickets, Smelter, seems as though this guy's had a few psychological problems. Well, that's a news flash. Norman pointed ahead. There's the bus. We're near him. Right near the bus stop, Devers. I'm sending over additional officers. Do not approach Smelter. Why not? He has my friggin' tickets. He leaned into the front seat. Cabby, stop right there. I can't. Smeltzer trotted down the sidewalk and back to the street. I need to get back to the garage. Norman banged on the seat. Listen, you little creep. Stop this cab or I will. The cabby, his eyes translucent, grinned, and then he accelerated. Norman lunged into the front seat and clamped his hands on the wheel. He fought for control of the car as it weaved across the road. After flattening three parking meters to the concrete, the cab rocked to a stop in front of a department store window. With a persistent hiss, the radiator's rising steam fogged the window. Norman bashed open the side door and rolled under the mannequins. He scrambled on his hands and knees away from the cab as a crowd gathered. Stumbling to his feet, he broke into a run down the road and back to the bus stop. Now the bus was gone and new people waited for the next bus but the exhaust lingered in the air. Smelter was moving two blocks ahead. Norman was not in shape for running, but was certain as he pivoted back to the street that he could catch Smelter. Smelter disappeared into a side alley. 
Within a minute, Norman approached the alleyway entrance. He didn't see the little smelter with his tickets. The brick building facade surrounded the empty alley stone pavers below. Norman's voice reverberated throughout the alley. Smelter! Smelter! He maneuvered onto the rough granite pavers. From a side street in the diminished light near a corrugated loading dock door, a faint tendril of light cut between the alleyway bricks. Norman stopped and called for Smelter again. Smelter! Compulsion forced him to peer over his shoulder. The cabbie stood at the end of the alley. Norman fled into the side street passageway. Why was that cabbie insistent about returning to the garage? His right side ached below his ribs as he re-entered the sunlight. A tall, mustard-brick church tower with a red-tiled roof and slanted dark windows loomed across the street. Smelter, at the top of the wide stone steps, dragged open the bulky wood door and entered the church. A new compact skidded and brakes squealed as Norman careened diagonally onto the sidewalk. A young girl in the driver's window screamed something at him and froze her middle finger. Norman scampered up the worn slate stairs and scrambled into the shadows, looking back at the small compact. He grabbed the church door's thick metal handle but strained to open the heavy door. Cooler, dusty, almost sweet air swept over him as his eyes adjusted to the darkened narthex. Organ pipes bellow as a fully packed congregation sang near of my God to thee. Smelter had secured himself in a side pew under a lofty blue and red stained glass window of Jesus praying in the garden. Smelter, his tatted undershirt bulging at the waist, had no hymnal and stared at the towering window. Norman slinked along the varnished wainscoting. Smelter's deep beard stubble was lost in his rolling chin's translucent skin and sprouting dark hair on his neck overlapped his t-shirt. Smelter's eyes expanded when he saw Norman's shadow cross the red and blue window light. You! As the parishioners in the organ forced the next verse, Norman fingered Smelter on the shoulder. My tickets! Smelter nodded and dipped into his pants pocket. He pulled out one ticket. The other one, Smelter, where is it? Don't you understand? He said loudly after the music stopped. Both men remained standing even after the congregation sat down. Give me the other ticket. From high above in the white panel pulpit, a man draped in a green robe spoke abruptly and loudly into a microphone. Would you gentlemen kindly sit down? This is a house of God. Norman closed his hand on Smeltz's undershirt at the shoulder and placed his other hand on his work pants belt. Then he dragged the grunting Smeltzer forward, just as the cabbie entered the main church aisle. Player! cried Smelter as the other people turned around. Player! That cabbie is a player! Norman and the cabbie locked eyes. The cabbie, over the protests of the minister in the pulpit, yelled as he ran down the red center aisle carpet. Smelter broke free toward the side door and Norman followed, but instead of racing outside, he leaped down the basement stairs and tumbled onto the orange and brown tiled floor. Norman jumped down the wood stairs but remained stable. He trailed after Smelter across a darkened parish hall into the ladies' room behind the translucent glass and a pine door. He'll bring me to Gerstein's, 
whispered Smelter in the dark. He reeked of pungent body odor. Because I know, I know how the Thirteen, they morph their faces, make you think they're different people in your life, but they're the players. The whole area went dark. The sound of shoes across the tiles got louder. Norman backed against the wall and felt his way to a bathroom stall. Then the hall lights blazed. A hunched old man in a brown checkered blazer opened his eyes and waddled toward the urinal. Norman clamped his teeth and pulled the protesting smelzer back into the parish hall. He checked up the stairs and then marched smelzer to the small concrete stairs that led to the outside door. They won't rest. They still come after me. He crouched and panned his head like a building security camera. They may even be in here. Did you lose my other ticket, Smelter? They almost had me last Tuesday, all the way to Gerstein's, two of them. The guy that looked like Harry Chase at the plant, that player. But he morphed and held me against the embalming room door. The whole funeral home vibrated as they all gathered around me in a circle. And brother, they lost their humanness. Norman opened a door to a stairway leading to the street. We're going down to the station. Come on, I want my ticket. They had human form until... Shut up, Smelter. The green glow, the smoky fog surrounded their faces. I took that embalming fluid and I threw it at them. I got away. Norman cupped his hand under Smelter's double chin and beard stubble as the side street came into view. Listen, you little simpleton. I'm sick of your dumbass stories. If you just hand over the ticket now. I lost it. You liar. They'll be back. We have to leave here before they morph. Hide. We must hide. No, said Norman. He pulled on Smeltzer's t-shirt and twisted it at the neck into his hand. We're only five blocks away. You can go tell your little fairy tale to Sergeant Devers. No, he's one of them. He'll, he'll morph into one of the teachers at the middle school. He raised his finger as he thought. Cronin, Dave Cronin, and whoever else has been absorbed. Shut up, Smelter, will you? Norman marched Smelter along the church lawn. Come on, off to Dever, then I get my company car back at Eddie's. Eddie's? No, no! He pulled Smelter's arm and stopped. What do you mean, no? What's wrong now? What What's going on here, Smelter? Eddie's is next to Gerstein's. Don't you see what they're doing? They'll take every bit of your soul, Norman. Yeah, right. Norman marched him around to the church stairs. The police station was behind the railroad overpass and down the next hill. He retained his grip on Smelter all the way to the far sidewalk. You know something, Smelter? You're a loser. From behind an oversized yellow van, the cabbie lurched onto the road with his arms extended, raced forward. He impacted Smelter's shoulder with a thud, separating the two men. Norman was knocked to the sidewalk. From an upside-down perspective, Smelter ran, then vanished into another alley. The cabbie only glanced at Norman, but he chased Smelter. Norman sat up, his breathing stabilized as he gawked at the single ticket. He pushed his fingers to straighten his hair and stood upright. The cabbie went after Smelter, the guy responsible for forcing the cab off the road. He exhaled and started toward Eddie's idle salvage. Maybe Smelter did lose the ticket. 
The heavy guy in the green sweater and black rimmed glasses shrugged his shoulders. Hey, Mr. Norman, they uh, slit your tires. <laughs> we ordered new ones from Braintree. It'll be a while. We got them for you wholesale. An angled beige Victorian sat behind several dozen dented cars behind a stockade fence. How long is a while? How long am I going to have to wait? Hey, this is Sunday. No more than noon. I've got a game I'm supposed to go to. You have my cell phone. Just let me go grab a bite to eat. He surveyed the funeral home roof and garage. Pal, that's a funeral home. Gerstein's. I know what it is. Norman's face tightened. His mouth was dry and sweat slowly cooled on his forehead. This whole thing makes no sense. If it were a weekday, I could probably get those tires right now. His fingertips touched the cold glass. Hey, uh, what's the big deal about Gerstein's? No big deal, he said and then cackled. They come in as fast as they go out. <laughs> Norman ran back to the counter and grabbed the edge. Smelter must have come in here. Who? Never mind. Norman closed his eyes and inhaled slowly. Call me. I'll leave my cell on during the game. You got it. Norman gave a quick push and the aluminum frame glass door flew open. Cold air hit his face. The funeral home's wood gutters were pristine white and its wide gray shingles were linear in the sunlight. The spreading red maple tree swept slowly against the black front awning and the long shiny black hearse traced the top of the weathered wood stockade fence. He shook his head again when he visualized Smelter lifting and then losing the second ticket. A gaunt man in a black suit and white shirt faced Norman as he neared the street. He had pasty skin, a wide forehead, and bushy brows. The man looked familiar. His dark, intense eyes sent goosebumps along Norman's arms and legs. A second man, his hands laced with translucent blue veins, was clad in a long beige trench coat. He focused on Norman from the driveway, and Norman instinctively reversed direction. Three additional men in dark suits stepped from a navy-hued limo with the lights on. Norman backed along the street as both groups converged and started toward him. What do you guys want? A high-pitched beep preceded the dark-eyed man's deep, shaky voice, and a low, resonating hum rattled the ground. I think you have us confused with other people. Upon closer inspection, his pupils were intermittently rimmed with micro-pulsing aqua bands. Formaldehyde vapors drifted in the cooler air. Norman peered the funeral home's protruding bay windows, but saw no evidence of lamps or artificial lighting. All men were planted rigidly like mannequins in the road. Slowly, as if on cue, these Gerstein undertakers formed a huddle. A brisk cold wind whipped his face. His heart thumped and he pivoted on the cement as he ran back into the city. He checked his analog watch as he jogged, the sunlight cutting like lasers through the trees. Over his shoulders, the undertakers remained in the street, arms crossed and immovable. In two hours, the game would start. Norman, bunched in the cheering crowd, held his hands up as he shouted. Getting another touchdown assured a big win. Everyone sat down as the special teams took the field. Next to him was the empty seat. He kept shaking his head. Hey, not often somebody gives up a seat like this, said an old man with a red cap next to him. Or maybe he just couldn't make it, huh? 
Or maybe he's just an idiot, a stupid little grunt. I've been to 22 consecutive games. Norman raised his left brow. Yeah, well, I've been to one consecutive game. I'll keep trying, he said, smiling, but he had no teeth. Yeah, I'll do that. Smelter, carrying a large styrofoam cup of coffee, locked eyes with him. Norman's face tightened. For a moment, Smelter hesitated and then started up the concrete steps. Through the crowd buzz, Norman called to him. He said nothing as he reached the 22nd row and then slid by the fans toward Norman. They left you alone, said Smelter, staring at the field. He sipped his coffee. You're a lucky man. They want me first. You know something, Smelter? You're really starting to get under my skin. Skin? Don't tell me about skin. He tilted his head back. They morph their faces, brother. They'll change at will, anywhere, anytime. I know them all. Even Mandy. She's a player. Smelter, there are no players. It's all inside your head. They were undertakers. Oh, sure, they look spooky enough, but that's what they do. They work at Gerstein's. Oh, they make you think that. Like Edgar. He's so slick. He can morph around a pole here at the stadium and walk to the other side as somebody else. Why did I have to find out, Norman? If I'd only walked back to my rooming house in a different way. I just happened to be in an alley. It was Beauregard who found me. With the wide mouth and those yellow teeth. He was at the ticket booth, but he didn't spot me. He rolled his eyes and laughed. I've been running for three weeks. Eventually, eventually they're going to find me. Norman pressed his teeth and grabbed Smeltz's sweatshirt by the arms. My friend was supposed to be sitting right there where you are. And Dr. Zandu, he's a magician. Dark eyes, he pretends to lead them all. He's the head guy at Gersten's. His hands shook and coffee spilled over the top. He'll reach out with those long fingers to draw you in, so you'll be a part of them. Then once you're trapped, they've got you. The crowd roared again and many people stood. Norman cupped his hands. Okay, I'll bite Smelter. Images of the dark Victorian and the Undertakers remained fixed in his thoughts. Why don't you just do what they want you to do? Be a part of them, as you might say. His eyes were solid and he didn't blink. It's a force central to all being. Gaseous, but not the sickening green cold within them. How many others have been absorbed? How many? His whiny voice was so loud that people turned. How many? It's not real, Smelter, shouted Norman. It isn't. There are no plays. They don't exist. Smelter stumbled to his feet and awkwardly backed down the aisle. He kept shaking his head like a man with a twitch. The words caused Norman's stomach to stir. In a few seconds, Smelter crossed behind a pole and then descended down the ramp. One of the undertakers from Gerstein's moved rapidly along the rail. He wore a blue and white football jersey and focused on Norman as he too vanished down the ramp. Norman's erratic breathing brought on a momentary lightheadedness. A kid in a red shirt hauled a blue plastic chest up the stairs. Hot dogs! Hot dogs! Hot dogs! Over here! said Norman, raising his hand. He fought to maintain his steady breaths. Kid opened the white lid and reached inside. He pulled out a foil-wrapped hot dog and passed it down the row. 
Norman asked for a second one and then sent a $5 bill back to the kid. For the first time since Smeltzer stole his second ticket, he was relaxed. He peeled back the warm foil and quickly sunk his teeth into the outer skin. Then he spread some ketchup along the rest of the dog. He ate half-heartedly and watched the two teams battle below. Thoughts of Smelter disappearing below continued to haunt him as he swallowed and then swished a beer around his mouth. Why was the man from the funeral home after Smelter? An anxiety crept into his stomach and his jaws froze. Something was unsettling and that pervasive fear descended across the stadium. He withdrew the hot dog from his mouth, chewed the remainder, and stared at the city buildings outside the stadium. Norman pushed his way back against the auto body counter. Late in the day, the pneumatic lug wrenches were silent, and a single dust lace radio blasted out a loud talk show into the customer area. The register pinged out the tire purchase, but his eyes were fixed on the glowing hurricane lamp in the center of the bay window of Gerstein's funeral parlor. The upstairs windows remained dark, and the tapering luminescence from the center lamp provided only glimpses of the parlor furniture and the flowered wallpaper. Norman creased his brow. That's $196, said the guy in Eddie's auto body's brown work shirt. Hey, Mr. Norman. Norman spun around and gripped the counter's edge. How long has that funeral home been there? Huh? Who owns that funeral home? Hey, asking questions like that could get you into trouble, Mr. Norman. Why? Why is that? What's the big deal? Will that be credit or debit? Norman stomped to the side door and placed his fingers on the cold glass. The halogens illuminated the wood stockade fence. Again, he was drawn to the singular hurricane lamp. From his vantage point, the deep red floral patterns on the wallpaper were evident. Numerous shadows expanded and contracted across the red floral wallpaper patterns. What is this? What is this? We're closing here, Mr. Norman. I'll have to ask you to pay your bill. Sure, he said, and he started to turn. Through the pane window in the indirect light, Smelter was forced by shadowy figures into a high-backed chair. Norman's eyes popped open. Hey, what the hell is that all about? My God, why is he in there? Sir? Norman pushed open the door with his shoulder, was instantly in the cold air. Several outstretched arms surrounded Smelter in a green hue in the chair. Smelter held his head and his swollen eyes looked frozen. Norman stumbled into the parking lot. He cut left and for a short time, Smelter's image was lost behind the stockade fence. At the funeral parlor driveway, he slowed and then stopped. A fine mist hit his face, and he held up his hand. The entire first floor was a flickering swirl of green light. He backed toward the street as the rain dabs danced over his skin, but something else, something unknown, was pulling him back toward Gerstein's, just as Smelter had predicted. He screamed into the moist air. Are you crazy? He fought the magnetic-like drawer and grabbed the wrought iron stair rails but his sneakers were ever so slowly dragged over the outside red carpet toward the heavy white door. Norman gripped the rails until his knuckles ached. His shoulders were stretched outward as his vocal cords screeched. He held until his muscles collapsed and he was thrown against the wood floor hard enough to wrench his neck. The door slowly creaked open and the sweetness of flower arrangements spread over his sprawled body. 
A smooth white ceiling was surrounded by beveled alabaster wood. His fingers pushed and were scratched into the pile fibers of a thicker rug. The door slammed shut and then the brass lock flipped secure. Who are you? He clutched the entry hall chair near a walnut podium with a brown leather guest book. I won't let you take me. Sweat congealed and then drained in rivulets down his temples. He no longer was restrained and rolled onto the carpet. The moist, warm air hung heavy. To his left was the open parlor, an elongated, darkened room with a taffeta floor lamp near the satin window drapes. Single chairs were sandwiched between the high back chairs and several maroon divans. Norman stood. Where are you? Where is everybody? He grasped the podium's edge and glanced down to a white-lettered black marquee. Smelter. What did you people do to this smuck? He spun and yanked fruitlessly on the glass doorknob. Then he flipped several light switches, illuminating more floor lamps and a series of brass lamps with swirled glass bulbs. He pivoted on the rug. The air cooled as if he had entered a freezer, and his sweaty clothes chilled his skin. What the hell is this? He backed slowly across the room, diagonally to his left. Behind a black frame monitor was an office at the end of the hallway. A mahogany desk was open and pens upward in holders and papers stacked. The area beyond was murky. Outlines of chairs and moving shadows shook his soul. I want to know who the hell you are and what you've done with Smelter. A warmer, pushing breeze sauntered at floor level, heating his socks and jeans. He looked at the shears across the front door's glass windows. His fists were now clenched as he raced into the office. The office door faced the driveway and it too was securely shut. Norman rounded the corner, inadvertently kicking the desk chair end over end into the parlor. He chugged into the dark and black room, but slid to a stop only a few feet in the low light. Another wood-paneled white door was marked for employees only, but may have led to the garage. He shuffled slowly now, his hand outstretched toward the side door. This handle was steel and cold, but it rotated. With his sneaker, he shoved the door. Stark white light allowed no shadows and formaldehyde inundated the air. Clear tubes housing the green swirling light were connected to smelter under the table sheets. Norman was motionless before the ashen smelter's dead eyes. He extended his arms back as he slithered along the outside wall, slipping on the folding chairs, and repeatedly threw himself into the garage door. This is insane! Something rustled in the sheet. Smelter's bare toes wiggled, and his head rolled to the right. His huge, moist blue eyes and grin sent Norman back toward the other room. Glass broke inside the lighted room, and something smashed on the vinyl. Smelter, sheet wrapped over his rotund form, moaned like a wounded animal. Norman turned to run. Five of the Gerstein undertakers arced around him like gunfighters in the Old West. The luminescence behind their eyes cast downward shadows across their tinted faces. Who are you people? The silence and icy breeze produced a gaping fear in his gut as he backed across the darkened room. He fell into a flower arrangement as two men stepped toward him. Smelter, wide grin ripped across his face, walked stiffly from the embalming room. His voice was high and fuzzy. You should have listened to me. Hey look, just let me out of here. I won't say a word. Smelter shook his head and the four men surrounded him. 
Light blossomed out like a green nuclear blast. For several minutes the building hummed in the brightness and then the sound diminished as the light decreased in intensity till it just remained a glow in his eyes. Again they formed a wide circle enclosing Norman. They eased him to the left and soon he was near the embalming room door. He looked over his shoulder at the gurney sheets. Oh no, oh no, you're not going to do that to me. Forrest encircled both his wrists, but his feet were free, and he side-kicked the embalming room door closed. The tension eased from his hands and wrists. The wood frame and the door hummed and soon buzzed. He slid one of the gurneys loose and jammed it between the side counter and the vibrating door. Then he backed into the garage. The thin door opened easily and he thrust his arm into the air. He maneuvered along the shaking garage wall toward the little door next to the larger garage. Pieces of plaster dropped from the garage ceiling. A low, deep bellow, almost a chant, resonated around him. He placed his hand over the doorknob and pushed. The night air rushed inside as Norman tripped onto the asphalt. He tucked and rolled toward the flower garden. When he looked up, all five men emerged from inside the funeral home. He scrambled back and bolted for the garage. Again, force surrounded his ankles. He clutched at the door frame and pulled himself back inside the garage. He whipped around against the hearse and dragged himself by the door handles. Then he spotted the keys in the ignition. He thrust open the driver's door and in a single motion dove onto the front seat and turned the key. The large engine turned over. He hit the shift into reverse and pounded the glass pedal. As the tires squealed, the driver's door was sheared off. The mighty hearse plunged through the garage door and splintering the edges and the panel door tumbled over and over down the driveway. Norman braked and then shifted as the hearse sped from Gerstein's. In the mirror, the men had scattered across the lawn. He pushed the accelerator back to the carpet as the cold night air blasted through the open door. The hearse skidded around the first corner. He swerved to avoid an oncoming pickup and then crashed the hearse into a utility pole. Steam billowed from beyond the hood and the horn blade into the night. He wiped the blood from his forehead. The windshield was cracked. Norman struggled to extricate himself and placed one sneaker and then the other on the pavement. Green radiator fluid formed rivulets on the asphalt stones. The blood continued down his cheek as a man and woman ran down the steps from their porch. His eyes opened wide as they crossed the lawn. Are you all right? cried the man. He looked down the street and then at the man. They'll get you! They'll get you! Who? asked the lady. Again he looked down the hill. I have to leave before they get me! You're injured! she shouted. But I'm alive. I'm not part of them, don't you see? They'll absorb us all! I don't understand. Let me get you to a hospital, said the man. Up the hill a small green compact's headlight shined upward. They're players! They're players! He turned and slipped, then trotted back up the road. They'll get you! They'll morph their appearance! There are thirteen of them! I won't let them get me! He dove to the side bushes and then ran through a bramble thicket. I'm human! I'm alive! I'm alive! I'm alive! I'm alive! I'm alive! I'm alive! Just a note about Gerstein's funeral home. 
After the death of one of my cousins, I needed to pick up some paperwork from the local funeral home in our town, which had seen the send-off of so many people I knew growing up. Unfortunately for me and my imagination, the owner and everyone else was out gathering bodies, I guess. He said I could enter from around back and walk across to the front parlor where I could pick up the paperwork folder. This required me to traipse through the embalming room. In a mere 15 seconds, I thought about every person I had ever known who came through this embalming room. Creeped out? Yeah, I was creeped out. And I got the H-E double hockey sticks out of there, and never to return, I might add. I may even write that in my will. I have no problem of being able to jump into most of my stories. With Players in Purgatory and The Last Rites of Dottie O'Leary, I'll take a pass. Next week, we have a story that has some creepy parts and a chance for redemption. The River of Fate. We will eventually be traveling back to Reedsville, Pennsylvania, where the past becomes the present. I'm Robert P. Fitton, getting on the bus and heading down the interstate toward Reedsville, Pennsylvania. See you then. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.